Welcome to The Row Show. We're your hosts, Lawrence Britton and Jake Green. And in this podcast, we're going to go into everything related to sport and performance. And we're also going to talk a little bit about rowing. South Africa. It brings people together, it breaks down barriers. My passion winning to be the best. Being the best is something we strive for. Sacrifice, role is high fit. Compassion, great passion, fiction, ultimate goal. Glory, relentless training, pain. Pain. (laughs) Hello, ladies and gents, and welcome to another Christmas special episode of The Row Show. And today we are talking to legend Greg Searle. And with me, as always, it's Jake Green, and it's great to be back on air, ladies and gentlemen. And yeah, this is going to be an awesome episode. And straight off the gun, the, 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 the most exciting thing for me is the fact that Lawrence, myself, and Greg have all been members of the Cox pair. Obviously, Greg, the Olympic champion, last Olympic champion in the Cox pair that will forever cement his legacy in that boat class. And uh, it's a very unique boat that uh, probably the most unique boat in rowing besides maybe an eight-man octopole. But it really is uh, uh, an amazing race that he was part of, that he, he beat the, the famous Abagnale brothers from Italy that, had the, the, that dominated the field for so long. And straight off the gun, that was such an amazing topic to chat to. But Lawrence, Greg had a long and decorated career, and uh, he went on to do some amazing things after that Cox Pears race. Yeah, I mean, he's got some seriously cool results and lots of different boat classes. And he's just a, a true British hero, I think, for, for their, their, their country. I mean, he really has represented them in some awesome ways. So obviously the last uh, Olympic champion in the, in the Cox pair and then also a huge stint in the, in the single skull, which, as we always know, if someone spent time in the single, that, uh, mm-hmm. that they have, uh, have got some serious rowing pedigree. And then, you know, to go back into the into the pair, an unlucky 2000 Olympic campaign where he, he finished fourth. But that's the famous French race where the French a did a huge push at the 1,000. And then a huge sabbatical only to come back 10 years later to row in that men's eight and represent um, Great Britain at the, their home Olympic Games and come away with a bronze medal in the eight. So I think all in all, Quite a seriously phenomenal career and athlete. Hey, Jake. Yeah, and Greg, you know, he's probably one of the more dynamic rowers we've had on the on the podcast. You know, he's another one that sh- that's uh, had experience in multiple you know, events that cross-discipline, um, that cross-discipline experience is always good to chat about. And, uh, you know, Greg was very articulate and obviously, you know, from his work doing commentating and stuff, he was, he, he, he had an amazing uh, way of sharing a story that really comes across well in this episode. And yeah, I think for, you know, all the, all the rowing listeners out there that are, you know, big fans of anything like the Cox pair, you know, the London Olympics, you know, Greg has been part of so many memorable, um, memorable experiences in, uh, in rowing history. So I think that's, this is a, this is a big episode for any of those out there that enjoy those aspects of our sport and one of my favorites. Yeah. And I think for, for us, you know, we always seem to struggle to to get the British athletes on the show and they just kind of elude us. But, you know, it's got such so much uh, rowing history and, and you know, rowing class that, you know, it's always awesome to to chat to someone uh, from GB and to to hear their stories because they, you know, I mean, it's just, he was very, very cool on the show, I must say. And as you said, because he's done a lot of commentary, he just spoke really well 
he's spoken about his own rowing a lot. You could see he's thought about it a lot. Uh, as we say with the the older athletes, they've always had time to reminisce and contemplate their their successes and their their struggles. So they always chat well. And yeah, I think apart from that, always a huge shout out to our patrons. You guys are absolute legends. Thanks so much for the support. You keep the show going, and you know we had a goal. Uh, and we are almost there for 2021 on our Patreon. So if you're listening on the free feed and just go across, give us that little bit of support to to reach our, our 2021 target. That will be fantastic. That would be amazing. And yeah, apart from that, Jake, anything else? Share the show. I think I share the show, guys. Get the word out there. And you know, 2020, 2021 is wrapping up and it has been our biggest year by far. And just a massive shout out to... All the listeners out there from all around the world, you guys are, or everyone is absolute legends. And, you know, you're just listening to the podcast and, and speaking about it has, has really helped us grow our podcast and, and keep developing. And it's not, obviously, we've got our eyes on the on the horizon and we can't wait to share with you 2022, a new year and, and some new things coming for us. And a new Olympic cycle. Oh, man, it's going to be New Olympic awesome. cycle. New yeah. crews, new legacies. And then we finally, then we'll get to to the thing. But yeah, we got lots of uh, changes coming, and we're really looking forward uh, to growing the show. You know, we nearly doubled our listeners, or more than doubled our listeners this year compared to uh, 2020. So that's a huge uh, shout out to all of your new guys and girls listening. It's been a, a really cool journey. And if you're traveling uh, on holiday and you're listening to the show, just remember drive safe and let the row show help you on the on the long road so yeah i think that's enough of us talking shit let's hit into the show sweet guys welcome ladies and gentlemen to another episode of the row show and today we are joined by olympic champion greg saw from uh, great britain and uh, welcome to Welcome to the show, Greg. Uh, thanks for coming on and giving us some of your time. No, thanks very much. It's uh, good to try and cast my mind back to when I was rowing um, at my peak and uh, and have a conversation with you about it. Yeah, and look, we actually we've got a lot to get through. You know, you've uh, you've managed to race at four Olympic ga- games, which is in itself an incredible achievement. But I think you know, starting from the beginning, and you know, starting at the talking about the 1992 olympic campaign where you raced in the cox pair with your brother which was actually the last time the cox pair was raced as an event as olympics you know i think that's uh it's a really ish, interesting event and you ended up going there at quite a young age so you know we're interested in like the story of how you know the formation of rowing with your brother started off with in the cox pair and um your experience was at the olympics so how did it, how did that um, bow class uh, begin with? Yeah, for sure. Um, I mean, it goes back even further than that, and it's um, it comes to my co-commentating buddy Martin Cross. Uh, that I guess a lot of your listeners are going to be pretty familiar with Martin. Mm. But um, yeah, Martin was my history teacher when I was at school when I was at Hampton. So when I was twelve, he won the Olympics in eighty four when Steve Redgrave was getting his first gold, and. Uh, I looked at him and my brother looked at him and thought, this sport looks pretty cool. Um, Maybe one day we could do that. Um, And then by the time I was 18, I'd done the Great Britain Juniors and I got to race in the eight at the World Championships um, in Tasmania in 1990. That was my first team. And the following year, I was in the eight 
in Vienna with Johnny and with Crossy. Mm. Um, so I got to race the world with, with Crossy, which is pretty awesome, um, and get a get a bronze. Um, but I, I guess we figured maybe there was more out there for us, and that was when the Cox pair kind of came onto the horizon. So yeah. I, there's two things there. Uh, that's awesome. I don't think there's many people out there that have uh, that can say that they raced at a world champs with their teachers. Um, so that just by itself is a, is a really cool thing. And then when I was looking up, I was so I I was hoping that you were in the the 1989 Cox Pear race because that is one of the best <laughs> races in world rowing of all time. It's a, at Lucerne, and everyone comes into the finish line within you know, one barbell of each other. And it's uh, it's such an, an epic thing. And then as we were saying earlier, like uh, the three of us have all raced at, uh, at World Champs and uh, at in the Cox Pair. So it's quite a, a special boat to talk about. And it's a boat that uh, you raced at the last Olympics in. So definitely uh, want to get into that even more because, I mean, moving into the, the Cox Pair must have been, you know, quite a thing there. And, you know, especially with your brother, how was the dynamic between uh, you and your brother in 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 a, in a pair? Yeah, I mean, it was we got the best out of each other and possibly the worst out of each other. Um, probably like most siblings who've had a go at rowing mm. together, um, you kind of see some who choose to do it and, and maybe some who choose choose not to be in a pair with their siblings. Um, I mean, we were in this eight in ninety one. We got a bronze and it was pretty good. But at this time, Redgrave and Pinson were just coming together, really, as a pair. Um, it was their first year together. And we, I guess we saw Steve Redgrave as, as looking quite old, really. Um, that he was trying to go to his third Olympics. And Matthew Pinson <laughs> as, as looking pretty young. And, mm. and was he really going to be able to do it? So within Britain, we were very ready to try and race against them and be the British pair. Um, probably as were, you know, Tim Foster and Martin Cross um, and a number of others who were pairs trying to be the fastest pair in Britain. Um, and I guess what became evident was that Redgrave and Pinson were going to do the Coxless pair, but we looked fast enough to race as a pair in our own right. Um, and the Cox pair became our boat. Um, it only became our boat late. We, we raced in it only twice before the Olympics. Um, one regatta, it was at Cologne. Uh, we raced it one day. And then we raced it at Lucerne. Um, and I think we just showed enough promise. I think we finished fourth and sixth or something like that. But we showed enough promise to think, you know, we believe we can do something with this boat. But actually, we had to change the game a little bit as well. Because when we first got in it, we rode it like everybody else did at about, you know, rate 34. Kind of like you say, you've rode in it as well, like sort of truck driver's mm. event. And you kind yeah, of think, um... yeah, you have these big, big lumbering <laughs> guys. And then yeah. we realized we could ease the gearing right back um, and, and we could go along at about 38 strokes a minute. Um, and it was making that change that gave us a change of pace that allowed us to basically stay with the race in the first 500. Then we lost it really in the middle thousand, but we had a change of pace to come back again at the end. And, mm. it, and it's only that we eased the gearing right out. You know, we cut, we cut the oars down um we used it right up and that gave us that sort of dynamism and we had to train differently for that too yeah when you say cut the the oars down did you mean like you physically made the the blade smaller no we cut it off the other end so about you know five centimeters off the handle um so we gave ourselves the same inboard which i seem to remember was about 117 um but shorter outboard just mm -hmm. so okay. it, it came through quicker uh, okay 
at this time, they, they, it's a great question. We were only just switching to hatchet blades, you know, yeah, chopper yeah. blades. Up until then, we'd had Macon blades, you know, the kind of symmetrical spoon. Um, mm. So people were still experimenting with both. Um, but, you know, we went for the, you know, the, the, the blade we all recognize now and we eased the gearing right up. But there was a lot yeah. of experimenting and people still weren't really sure if this was, this was just a fad that, you know, would never work or whether this was, this was here for, for good. So when you're trying to like, you're trying to change the, the game a little bit, you're trying to rate that, find that like kind of a, a new way of coming down the, the course. How do the coaches react to kind of you guys trying to, to change that up? I mean, surely they kind of wanted to keep it the way it was done. And then how did that, so how did you kind of make that change and make everyone believe that that was the, the best way for you guys to race? Yeah, I mean, I think we had real freedom because we we were new to the event. So we were a kind of blank canvas. You know, when I started my career, I was like a blank canvas. I'm not sure the stuff that I put on the canvas necessarily helped me <laughs> in the next bit of my career. Because um, you maybe get a bit stuck, don't you? you get a bit locked in with what mm. works for you. And we quite liked being a bit maverick. We like being on the outside. Um, at this time, you know, I, I, obviously some people will know the setup of rowing in Great Britain, but, you know, we didn't have a centralised team. We rowed in separate clubs and there was kind of Leander Club with Redgrave and Pinson and now they had Jürgen Grobler and then there was other people in London. And we felt like we were the people in London, well, we were the people in London, but that we were, we had less, we were more the kind of rebels um, we were more ready to take risks. And if, if they were going to train and do kind of Jürgen's program, we were going to go particularly hard on the kind of fartlek training, the, the dynamic off the water training and doing the things that they weren't doing. So it mm. came quite naturally for us to be Maverick, uh, yeah. which, was, which was good. And we had a coach and Steve Gunn, who at that time was really happy and, and challenged and supported us to do that. Yeah, and then focusing in a bit on the, the actual 1992 Olympic final race. And uh, I mean, that's really such an incredible performance. And I'd love you to talk us through uh, a bit about the race and maybe just to, to preface your answer by just saying how, you know, I remember finding a, a, a video of you uh, at a talk and just saying uh, what your cock said halfway through the race. I believe it was along the terms of, you know, if not now, when and if not you, who? And I think that is such an incredible saying that really sums up, um, you know, uh, such a, a important approach to racing that I think most people would have. So maybe chat to us a little bit about how the race unfolded. And, you know, that last 700, 500 meters was absolutely incredible. Yeah, sure. No, I mean, there's, there's, there's a few things in there. And, you know, the Cox pair as an event is a bit weird. There's two rowers and one Cox. Um, mm. And Gary Herberts was our cox, and he was brilliant for us because we just had a great kind of rapport with him. Um, when we were on our training camp um, for three and a half weeks in Austria, we actually moved the furniture out of our room so we could put his bed in our room with us. So three of us <laughs> shared a two-man room. And, mm. you know, we just we wanted him to be with us, and he needed to say the right stuff at the right time. And it's funny, the, the if not now, when, if not you, who think? Because actually that had come from our sports psychologist, um, a guy called Brian Miller, who was brilliant working with us. We really respected him and liked what he said. And I think what Gary was able to do was to balance the kind of head and the heart, which I think as a mm. cox, that's kind of what you need to do. You know, you need to give people the information, you know, the stroke rates, 
the distances, the kind of pre-planned stuff, and then you've got to put a bit of magic in um, and, and talk to people in a different way. And, and Gary was able to do that with us. Um, and I don't know if he'd planned to remind us of the conversations that we'd had off the water about this being a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, two brothers, our parents being in the stand watching, um, all of those things. And, and you know, that, that expression we'd used off the water, if not now, when, if not you, who. Um, but we decided we were going to make a move in the third quarter. Mm. And we needed, we needed all the speed we could get in the first 500 just to stay with the Italians. Um, they really move on us from about 500 gone to 1250. And then at 1250, we did a real traditional, you know, burn, a real traditional mm. old style. Uh, when we hit 1250, I think we did 10 strokes where we tried to pull harder. Um, and then we did 10 strokes where we put the rate up about three beats. Um, and then we did 10 strokes where we kind of did a stride and we took the rate down again, but tried to pull even harder for 30 strokes. Mm. And I think that was the turning point in the race where we went from the Italians going quicker than us to us going quicker than the Italians. And then it was just whether we had enough race course left to catch them. Mm. Um, and when we did that move, which we'd pre-planned the kind of 30 strokes, you know, pull harder, rate up, pull harder again. Um, he called, if not now, when? And then actually he, he said, if not now, when again? And then he forgot the if not you who. But he never mentions that. He the patient situation, that. yeah. Yeah, yeah. He just got excited. And, and the important thing was it reminded us that this was kind of the time we talked about. We were going to do our big move. Yeah. And then, and then again, I can't remember what he said. I just remember how he said it. Because then we were always going faster than the Italians for the next 750 meters. Yeah. Um, but that's what's so... Two to go. That. That's what's so important about uh, someone calling in a boat or someone or a cox is, you know, they got to like use all that emotion. They got to, in a few words, they've got to now bring on a whole uh, chunk of emotion. And, and, you know, when they say something, it needs to remind you of something else that, uh, that you, some effort that you've put in, some challenge that you've, you've gone through and kind of moving it on from there. And I think that's maybe where me and Jake struggled in the cox pair was that we didn't have a cox pair in South Africa because I raced in oh, 2014. Geez. Jake raced in yeah. 2015. 2015, and yeah. we didn't we didn't have a cox bed home, so we were racing in the um in a pair with just the the like the biggest pair we Wait. could find, and then just putting a whole stack of weights in, and then we didn't oh, ever really yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we didn't ever really build a relationship with a cox. So the cox yeah. like kind of was there, but he wasn't part of your crew. And then only at the games, he's getting in. Oh, I mean, at the at, at the, the world champs, he's getting in the boat. And then he's struggling because also like you, we spend so much time rowing pairs and he's spent a lot of time rowing eights. And then how does he now adjust to a pair, which is so different, you know, just even on steering and on all the, yeah. the kind of nuances about a pair. So I don't know. I found that really, really difficult. Jake, uh, he, he seemed to have caught on a little bit better by I, the, I the did, second year. I did catch on a little bit better. I enjoyed it probably a bit more than Lawrence did, but I can tell you, Greg, the weights were the biggest mission we had to carry these bloody things down each session to the, yeah. the river load them in and yeah, this is about 50 kilos 55 50, yeah. kilos. kilos of weight and yes it was it was a mission and uh we even had the yeah. one in one piece 15 kilos fell off by accident which was fantastic because we suddenly just shot off with ridiculous <laughs> but yeah um oh, it, it, and it was off, jake it fell off yeah, yeah. it was uh it was a cool experience and I, I love to talk about the psychology because 
for you guys, you were racing against the Abagnale brothers, and you mentioned them earlier, and they were a real establishment um, by that stage at, at the Games. You know, two-time Olympic champions, nine-time world champions. So for me, that it almost sounds like that was the edge that you needed to take them on because you can't you can't expect to beat a crew like that if you maybe give them too much respect or don't talk about you know what you will do to actually upset them so i think the psychology talk there is is uh, probably very important and maybe something that i think still can uh be more prevalent in rowing today yeah i think we we had huge belief and we weren't prepared to settle for silver we we weren't going to say they're going to win and you know, a silver medal will be a good result. A silver medal would have been a pretty good result. Um, but we always believed that they were kind of coming towards the end of their career. We would be able to get past them in our training with Redgrave and Pinson. You know, we'd have very good prognostics and all that kind of stuff. So we maintained a belief that even though they were in front, we would always be able to come back. And, and I think, like you say, getting yourself to believe is is a big part of the battle. It's, it doesn't win you races, but giving up and not having mm. belief kind of loses you races for sure. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's that's uh, pretty well put there. Um, and then you know, moving forward, in 1993, you know, it was it was announced that um, the Cox Play would be discontinued as an Olympic event, and you you saw yourself with your brother hopping into the four, and you know, taking that on towards Atlanta and, and you know, 1996. And um, yeah, so I mean, the 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 four transition was was interesting because even at the time, you know, the the famous um, Aussie four, the awesome foursome, and you know they have a really strong um, tradition in that event. So talk to us about switching into the four and like racing in that field and what how how was it? It must have been a huge change coming from a, a boat like the Cox pair switching into you know a straight four. Yeah, it was a huge change and. Um, if I look back now, I think there's things we might have done differently um, that might have given us an edge in the, in the straight four. Um, I mean, at the time, the Australian four were in sort of semi-retirement. Mm. Um, so for the first couple of years, we didn't really race against them, um, which was probably good. And there was a really fast Italian four who won the world championships, actually, I think in 93, 4, 5. Um, and just didn't quite make it through to the games um, because the the race in Atlanta was a bit like you know one of those one of those amazing races where there's pretty much six boats in a line with 500 to go um, and the Australians ultimately come through and win it. I guess for us, um, this is maybe some of that sort of uh, unlearning kind of stuff. We'd got mm. in some patterns, you know. We were the Searle brothers. We got invited, you know, on lots of TV shows and, you know, we got sponsored by, I remember we were sponsored by the clothes company, No Fear. Um, mm. And we had these t-shirts that, you know, all four of us wore that had kind of, you know, second place is the first loser written on them <laughs> and, and all this kind of stuff, which yeah. is not that cool when you're kind of coming third or coming second at the world championships mm. <laughs> and you're wearing that kind of t-shirt. And, and it's the sort of stuff that in hindsight, you kind of think, yeah, maybe we should have had a bit more, kind of humility about us and maybe we should have been ready to learn a bit more and take some different kind of chances and you know mix up our pairs a little bit more you know I very much always rode with Johnny and Tim Foster always rode with Rupert Oppolt so we never kind of mixed those pairs and really worked as a four 
but we still came from a time when we weren't one team GB. Mm. We were separate clubs and they were in one club and we were in another club and you know they were coached by one guy for half the year and we were coached by someone else. So it was still not not the way it was when I came back in 2012 where we had a really good one team kind of approach. It was more old school and in mm. hindsight I don't think that helped us. Although at the time we didn't know it. We were just doing what you did and it was it mm. was good fun and we were enjoying rowing. Um, but I think had we trained in a different era, more like the era we've got now, I think we would have got better results. Yeah. And, um, you know, obviously going to the Olympics, um, your your goal would have been undoubtedly winning the gold medal. And I think that another, you know, just on, based on my research, I think the races that you've been part of in your career have been some exceptionally notable races. <laughs> yeah. And I think nineteen that uh, 1996 race in the fall was just another incredibly, um, you know, such a, a spectacle of rowing and definitely a race where I think people must go watch, you know, just if you, you know, enjoy your rowing. And I think obviously getting the bronze medal for you guys must have felt like quite a disappointment. But obviously looking back now, I don't know, you know, maybe your attitudes towards that race have changed because, you know, it was still such a, you know, an enormous achievement there, winning the bronze medal in that fall and being part of such a, a very competitive um, race there in that Olympic final. Yeah, I mean, I feel very proud of, of having won uh, an Olympic bronze. I feel proud of having competed at four Olympic Games. You know, it's lovely that you can introduce me in that way. Um, but no, I mean, the the T-shirts that we wore, you know, <laughs> second place mm. is the first loser, kind of suggests when you win a bronze medal and you kind of stood yeah. there on the medal ceremony, you're feeling pretty disappointed with what we've done. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, with, without disrespect to the Australian four, you know, I think if we'd rode the race 10 times, you know, we probably could have had six different winners over the course mm. of the 10 races. A hundred percent. You watch it, you know, yeah, if you no, it, is, it on video, it's a pretty tight race. It's uh, a very tight race, especially towards the end. You know, it's a, it's definitely a race where, like you said, if you, you if you, you know, kind of created a speculative idea of rerunning the same race over and over again, I'm pretty sure there would be multiple outcomes, but just based off, you know how tight and competitive the race was um yeah, yeah. but, but also, i guess what... i need to say i need to yeah. say it, it only matters once i'm not yeah I'm exactly not yeah, the australians the didn't deserve it we all know you no, only race the olympic final once and they won but that's what makes this race that's yeah. what makes racing so exciting and i mean if you look at the the racing and i mean i know through your commentary the racing over the last uh you know 2019 and 2021 has been incredibly close and i think if you race those races again and again there would be you know, I mean, in some of the different some outcomes. of the events, lightweight women's double, there would be twelve different uh, winners. Mm. So you know, I think that's just the, exactly. sing, the men's single in Linz. You know, mm. I've had yeah. the privilege of, of being there for some incredible races over the course yeah. of time, and and I've also, like you say, you know, I've been able to row in a few as well. Um, I, I'm not like speaking to Steve Redgrave or Matt Pinson or something where you kind of knew the result after about ten strokes. You know, I've never known the result of any of mine <laughs> until, yeah. you know, even in the last 10 strokes, I haven't known this, the result until the very last one. Mm. Yeah, we spoke yeah. To, to Hamish recently and he was talking about how um, only it took so long to like have build confidence in their in their race and like in what they were going to do down the track. Even in the beginning, it was like always a bit unknown, like, okay, lining on the start line, like, what are we getting today? What's what's going to happen down this this track? So I think... Yeah. 
having that confidence in racing is not uh, something that that comes easily. And as soon as you have pressure in the race, then uh, that confidence can go as quickly as you can get it. Yeah, for sure. No, for sure. Mm. Yeah, um, and then- but I always believed. I always believed we were going to win. You know, in yeah. all four of my Olympic finals, I sat on the start line thinking, you know, this is our day. You know, we've we've done everything right, and and now we're going to go and win a gold medal. Um, unfortunately, it only happened yeah. for me once, but you know, that's it. Yeah, but there's you not can many tell... athletes, I think, on the on the start line that don't believe they can do it. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. On the way down. But, but I think you can. I think that's going to be a theme that we'll probably discuss, you know, further on the episode. But you can definitely tell that you know, watching your racing and kind of the getting an idea for the the race profile or just the general approach towards you can definitely tell that that's a mentality that you had because I mean in all your the races I've watched the Olympic finals you know the pair 2008 in, in London 2012 there was always you can physically um you can watch there's always a point in the race where there's that that uh, the gold medal um trying to take the gold medal and you know it's, it's a it's you could probably say that's also sometimes you know a bit risky because you, you probably could end up but i mean at the end of the day everyone's out there to win a gold medal and you know psych- psychologically it will give you the edge and i think it's probably you know we were talking about the psychology earlier you know you might come off second best you know every now and then but you know you might have never ever won that gold medal in 1992 to begin with so it's a very interesting discussion around you know what are the the two sides to the coin yeah, and I think it's a, there's definitely a shadow side to it. You know, I think about the um, the impact that it's had, and I don't know if this is just British rowing, but I kind mm. of think of the history within British rowing and the success that we've had, yeah. which leaves a lot of the guys now, and I see them race and be interviewed afterwards, and if they don't win gold, they're disappointed. And mm. if they don't bury themselves trying to win gold, they feel like they've let the side down. Um, mm. And of course, the shadow side of that is sometimes it goes badly wrong, and you end mm. up, you know, really not delivering on your potential. But mm. it's it's the sort of um, the approach that I think we've really taken within British rowing. Not to say that other countries don't take that too, um, mm. but it's recognizing I think the amount of success that we've had over years, the consistent approach we've had in British rowing, which is sort of win or nothing. Um, mm. which maybe given the support and the funding that we've got is right, that you should be thinking it's win or nothing. But just recognising the shadow side of it, you know, we were pretty close to nothing in London 2012, and I'm really happy we hung on for, for something as yeah. in a, a medal, um, mm. for sure. Yeah. So, I mean, there's really good stuff in there. I'm sure it's going to – we'll come back around to it. But, you know, yeah. in your in your career, there is – I mean, you can definitely say you are – a master of sweep rowing. You know, you've raced four Olympic games, four different sweep boats, the men's pair, the men's uh, Cox pair, the men's four, the men's eight. But there is this sneaky couple years here, uh, 1997 to 1999, where you you spend uh, three years in the single. And we had lots of questions from uh, from our listeners, from our, our, our top supporters to ask about the single and what is what uh why did you choose to to go to the single and kind of how did that experience go and then what was the decision to then switch back to to the men's pair for the 2000 olympics yeah so i mean lots of reasons to go to the single um i was 24 um i was pulling a 544 concept to you know 2k time 
I, mm. I pre had pretty good resources at my disposal, but I guess I'd always been seen as the sort of uh, slightly clumsy one that rode behind my brother or sat in front of my brother mm. with him sort of pulling my chain. <laughs> and so it was mm. like, right, let's see what I can do in a single. Um, and I was excited to to see what I could do in a single and see if I could develop the skills that were needed. And there's a lot of um, uh, kind of myths and legends about sculling, you know, that it's a bit of a dark art um, and, and these clumsy rowers won't be able to do it. And so mm. I was quite interested to try and investigate that and see if I could figure it out. Um, and and I chose to go and race the single because I guess after getting the bronze medal, my brother was going to be a full-time lawyer and probably spend less time rowing. Uh, Great Britain were just starting the national lottery and starting to get some more funding. So it was an option to be a more full-time rower. And I guess to go off and try and row with Steve Redgrave and get into the four still felt a bit like joining the dark side mm. um, to kind of leave my club and go to Leander club. I was still wanted to be a rebel kind of on the, on the other side. And, you know, I needed the force to be with me. Um, and if I was to go off and, and do this thing, the single, then this was the way to do it. Um, and the wonderful thing was uh, I'm sticking with my metaphor that Harry Marne came into my life. Mm. And, um, you know, I'm sure you've spoken about Harry Marne and, and yeah. people might or might not know him, but I guess, for me, he had a coaching style much like Yoda um, yeah. from Star Wars. So he mm. was just the guy I needed to kind of challenge and support me in a different way and help me kind of figure out this thing that was sculling, which, to be fair, was a bit of a dark art and did need a different approach to what I'd had as a rower. Um, so I had, you know, I had a, an amazing first year in the single with with Harry, um, and and I learned so much about myself as a person as well as myself as a as a rower um, mm. in that year in the single. Yeah, sure. They, first of all, I love the Star Wars quote. That's fantastic. Yeah. Um, mm. That uh, that really goes well with me. But uh, and that brings us uh, actually to Harry Mom because he was a, a big question that we we had on our list and you know and even uh, some of our listeners Jess came in with the wanting to know what was the magic about Harry Mom because we've heard from a lot of our, our our guests on the show you know we've had Zeno on we've had um, Martin Cross and we want to hear a little bit about what the magic was uh, with with Harry Mom because. He uh, definitely has a, a, a very special place in, amongst the, the coaching greats. Yeah, no, he, he should have a special place. And it's hard for me to know what he was like for other people because I think he was able to change his approach for the people who were in front of him at the time. But, but the approach he took for me was very empowering of me to go from someone who sat in a crew boat and being the kind of strong guy, as I've described myself, um, to actually getting me to take responsibility uh, for what I was doing. And I didn't ever feel like Harry had a picture of what good rowing looked like um, or good sculling looked like. Um, you know, some coaches, you sort of have an idea, you know, this is what I want all the crew to look like. I can draw it. I can show you a video of someone doing it. And you now try and copy that. What Harry was able to do was to look at me and help me figure out what was the best way for me to make the boat move? 
Mm. Um, and because I was in a single, I didn't have to match in with what seven other people were doing. I just had to figure out what, what I did that made the boat go fast. Um, so it would involve um, much more asking than telling. So you'd be asking me what I'm feeling, asking me what I'm noticing, getting me to do some drills that might feel quite uncomfortable at times, um, trying to do some things that were quite experimental at times. Um, and I guess what was quite interesting um, was that Harry then, uh, as you probably know, also was diagnosed with cancer while he was coaching me um, and was quite ready to try alternative therapies to try and, and, and keep himself going, which he did really successfully. And in the same way, he was ready to try alternative ways of getting me to, to move the boat quickly. Um, so as an example, you know, we might watch a rugby match and I would enjoy watching the All Blacks playing with him and he'd watch what's going on. And then we'd go on the water and he'd just kind of talk about what it's like to hold the ball and, and drop it and then kick it. Yeah. And, and I would be sculling along thinking about kind of coming to the catch with this ball in my hand. And then as I kind of let the weight go from my hand, I then need to collect it with my foot. And, yeah. and that was really just inspired by having watched the All Blacks with, with Harry on TV. I don't think yeah. it was like a model, the old dropkick model. It was just think about having that ball and then you drop the ball. And then at the right time, you just pick it up with your foot. And then it's on your foot. You can feel the ball on your foot for a split second as you just kind of push it away. And I would, I would find myself doing that. And that was then one of the kind of tricks I could pull out to make the boat go a bit faster was to think about the dropkick thing. Or, mm. or a number of other things, you know, think about how my back felt, that my back was like a big drawbridge and I would connect it and then I would open it. Um, or what it would feel like at the finish and how I would scrape my fingers on a blackboard and kind of, you know, that feeling, you hate yeah. that idea of scraping it, but I would scrape the finish in and, and how that would feel to me. So that, I would create these pictures and then I could bring them out when I needed them. Yeah, I think that's, that's, that's such... Um... That's such a good way of of uh, just exploring the rowing stroke, and what I really like about that, and and something that you know, a coach in South Africa who actually was very heavily inspired by Harry Mon and references him a lot, is that uh, you know the the rowing stroke. It isn't there are certain elements about the rowing stroke that is you know very technical, but there's so many things in rowing that are very very abstract, and it's not a situation where you can necessarily just say you know, just make the, your catcher X amount faster by doing X amount of this. There's a lot of exploring and discussions and conversations, you know, that you need to have around the rowing stroke and really, you know, reference a lot of different other things around life that um, can help relate to uh, how how you can actually make certain aspects about the boat go faster. And I think that's such a good example, especially going into a skull. You know, you can't just, you know, rely on you know one facet of of rowing to go fast it's really about embracing all the dimensions of the rowing stroke especially the 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 abstract ones about rhythm you know yeah. the speed of the catch and picking it up on the water they're like the feeling of it as well and like the uh, it's, rowing is not like it's not a set thing it's fluid it can change and and i think your coach needs to be able to kind of change with that style and i think that's one of the beauties about getting in the single is then you are not limited by the crew and you're not trying to fit into the crew. You're trying to just feel kind of what your stroke is and, and how your stroke makes that, uh, that boat go faster. And I, mean, I like mm. how you say that the single, there's like that dark side to, to conquering the single. <laughs> yeah. And what we find on our, on our guests is like the single scholars are like they're specific kind of have a specific mindset of training by themselves and, and being able to deal mm. with the, 
isolation, but we all, we also find that like all the rowers that row in this that, that most athletes spend a lot of time in the single just to to perfect the, the rowing stroke and get that feeling for the boat because there's such a a benefit from from doing both. Mm. No, huge. I mean, like you say, it's about the feeling. You know, you you need to develop feel, and I develop so much feel in the single because it's only me that affects the boat, rather than obviously having someone else there that that disturbs it. <laughs> so. So Harry really helped me to understand how I made the boat go faster. Um, and I, yeah, I absolutely loved it. And, and like I said, I was going to say about the kind of alternative kind of things we did. I remember he got me not to pull so hard, you know, pretend you don't have big, strong arms like yours, mm. look at my arms and, and pretend I had arms like his. And then mm. he would sit in the launch and I would sort of row my arms in time with his kind of quick and light and easy. And then we moved on. And for some reason, I decided, or we decided, I needed to be good at, at rowing the boat at 30. Um, and I think the goal was to be able to row for 30 minutes at 30, which kind of in a single to go along at 30. That's for 30 minutes difficult. at 30 is a pretty big yeah. ask. Yeah. Um, and so we started off by doing two minutes at 30, 10 times. So I would do like, okay, for two minutes, take it up to 30, have a little break, two minutes, two minutes, two minutes. Until we went kind of, you know, eight threes, you know, six fours, six fours, you know, five fives, sixes, oh, awesome. sevens, eights, twenties, mm. until up. I was doing sort of two fifteen minutes at thirty, and I just got really good at being light and quick and easy in the boat, mm. and I think that really helped me to stop trying to pull as hard as I could every stroke, but just be really kind of efficient every stroke. Mm. Yeah, one of our one of our listeners um, has a bit of a crush on you because uh, he said that uh, you'd come to South Africa to train with Harry Mann, and then I think Harry was doing some coaching uh, with our South African uh, team, and that you'd come in and you'd helped him in his in his two k, and then you'd uh, rode in the in the lightweight four for a bit. So yeah, I mean, I, I I'm impressed that you 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 came all the way out to South Africa to to do a bit of training, but I suppose the no. British have have been coming out there coming out to South Africa for a long time. Yeah, but this was before that. This was still in the days when we were free to do what we wanted. So, yeah, Harry mm. brought me out to, to Rue de Platte. Um, I hope I said that. There okay. we go. Uh, <laughs> better than yeah. me, actually. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, yeah, to come out and train there. Yeah, it's kind of halfway between Joburg and Pretoria, isn't it? Mm. I guess people who don't know it so well. So we're training at altitude. and No, that was just me and Harry staying in someone's house, um, driving an old car. Um, kind of stopping and going to all the local shops and buying our food, going to the Wanderers to watch cricket. Uh, it would mm. be the Wanderers, wouldn't it? Yeah, yes, it, uh, uh, yeah, yeah. There's, there's, there's the Wanderers. Yeah, yeah. I spent about three weeks over there, and yeah, he was doing some coaching with some of the South African team at the time, and yeah, it's really, really good experience. And again, that was where I said I was growing as a person rather than being a kind of you know institutionalized rower. You know, go mm. and spend some time living in South Africa in. 1997 you know it's it's the kind of thing that you want to do when you're 25 and you've only ever been on training camps mm. you know it was brilliant brilliant to, to grow up a bit no for it's sure. quite awesome actually the wonder is it's like just behind me it's like uh maybe 100 meters or 200 meters that oh way. wow yeah yeah. Mm. yeah no well i loved going to the cricket it was brilliant and i'm jealous that you can do that yeah <laughs> not, so not for a while actually not, yeah it's been a bit difficult currently as you can imagine but um, oh no yeah 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 <laughs> so moving on greg you you find yourself rowing in the pair at the you know the 2000 olympics and 
you had a quite a, a good run up, you know, s- switching from single to the pair, getting in the body with Ed Code, another new combination, new boat class, you had a, a fairly decent run up, picking up, you know, podium finishes in the World Cups going into the Olympics. And then again, we talk about, uh, you know, crazy races. I think the most referenced race that guests and people have on the show is the 2000 Olympic men's pair final. And I think, you know, you guys really go out there and take the race by the scruff of the neck. But, I mean, it must have been such a crazy race to be part of because of, you know, just how the race unfolded. And obviously, it wasn't a result that you guys um, uh, had wanted for yourselves. But, I mean, looking back, being part of such an incredible race must in itself be incredible. And, you know, finishing with that fourth place has been bitterly disappointing. But I think, you know, we'll talk about further going on moving into the eight. It must have been still an incredible race to be a part of. Yeah, no, I mean, the, I ended up in the Coxless pair um, because basically with the single, I wasn't I wasn't quick enough um, and Harry got sick. And as Harry got sick, my speed seemed to sort of almost track his, his illness. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I ended up needing to come to Leander Club, training alongside um, the, the four and training under Jürgen. And I've got to say, it didn't suit me that well. Um, mm. I probably wrestled against it more than I should have. And that stuff doesn't show itself until you're really under pressure. Um, and, you know, pressure comes in the third quarter. And, and you know, the, the French came with a, uh, put a lot of pressure on us. Mm. And we we didn't actually row a bad race in in Sydney 2000. Yeah. If mm. you look at our splits, you know, we do. I, I can't remember exactly what they are, but, you know, our first 500 is, I'll make it up, you know, a 140 or something. The next one is a kind of 142, the next one's a 143, and the last one's a 141. You know, we, we had exactly the shape you would expect to have. It's just mm. the French did something absolutely insane in the middle and came piling through us. Um, and, you know, we, we just didn't really have a response. And and in hindsight, you know, we, we really, really should have won the silver in that race. Um, mm. You know, we'd beaten the American pair fairly consistently. We'd beaten the Australian pair fairly consistently. And and the French really deserved to win and did something incredible and deserved to win. So if I think about it, you know, it's it's not the not winning goal. It's the sort of uh, just don't think we really, you know, when they rode through us, I don't think we responded as well as we probably could have done um, and, and left the door open, really. Um, and the Americans and the Australians kind of piled through it in the mm. last, you know, whatever that was, the last 10 strokes or so. So, yeah, I mean, obviously it was an amazing race to be part of. We pretty much did what we planned. You know, we, we <laughs> sat down the night before and yeah. said, let's do this, let's do this, let's make these calls at this time. And we did that. And and again, you know, the the, the French, you know, did something that was that was pretty fantastic and, you know, well well done to them. And like I say, the disappointment is to go, yeah, you know, we didn't we didn't deliver what I think we were capable of, which was probably that silver or a bronze. Um, mm. But back to what I said earlier, really, you know, we have this approach which is a bit kind of all or nothing. So when mm. it suddenly looked like it was it was nothing, maybe we weren't we weren't ready to kind of hang on and, and really fight for the silver in in the way that perhaps we needed to. Mm. And sure, you know, no, I think that's only insight that you can get. Yeah. After- time and after like years of of looking at it and uh you know it takes yeah. time with a lot of athletes when it's still fresh it's it's hard to to kind of find that um 
extra meaning but after time they start to realize that um you know there was there was there's still importance and there's still meaning in uh in the in the hard results then then you decided to to call it a day and you you mm. you hung up your oar and uh and you 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 seem to to carry on with uh with the rest of of your life at that uh, at that point and was rowing done for you after the 2000 games yeah i mean i was pretty happy with my career up till that point i could i could probably see the pattern that i'd gone first third fourth <laughs> and i could see the way this was heading um no but it, it, in reality um uh, my wife was pregnant with our first child in in Sydney. Um, I'd found a job that I really enjoyed, which was kind of taking lessons from sport into business. Um, I, I, you know, I'd got married and, and wanted to kind of move on with life, really. And I'd never been a a full time rower. I'd always worked alongside rowing, and so it felt like now was time to really invest in my career. So that was pretty much what I then planned to do for the for the rest of my life, if if other events hadn't kind of come along and and, and put themselves there to be to be worked at. Yeah, and then so Greg, two thousand and five comes around, and a huge announcement happened that year. And what happened was that the host city for two thousand and twelve was announced, and it was London. And obviously, you made an incredible comeback to you know rejoin the. The GB rowing system in um, you know in 2010 was your first season of racing again, but just with starting it off, did you know when it was announced in 2005, like okay, this is this is too good of an opportunity to miss out on, or you know as that as the years progressed and that you know the that year started coming closer, did you suddenly realize like well, hang on, I've actually got a a chance here to be part of something incredibly special? Yeah, so actually, it's both of those things. So I remember the announcement happening um, and I was still seeing one of the physios um, who who was working with the team back in 2000 in Sydney. Um, and she lives locally to me and I was I was probably doing, you know, a bit of, I, I'd run the marathon a couple of times. I'd done a bit of triathlon. I was playing some five-a-side football. And so some sailing too. Myself, and some sailing. Yeah, yeah. And I was keeping myself in reasonable shape. Um mm. But I remember going for a physio session um, fairly soon after London had been chosen as the host city. And I remember we talked and she said, you know, would you would you consider doing it? And I went, yeah, I'd love to race in London. And and for London, we had this um, this kind of purpose, if you like, uh, which wasn't just to host the Olympics, but it was to inspire a generation. So kind of we had inspire a generation was kind of front and center of the whole bid. And, mm. and we're saying, right, what does it mean to inspire a generation? And I guess by now I had two kids. Um, you know, it wasn't hard to do the maths and, and see they were going to be nine and 11 when 2012 came around. So the idea of competing in front of them was pretty exciting back in 2005. But I also didn't want to break from my career and I didn't want to make the massive lifestyle choices really to be an athlete. Um, and I probably wouldn't have done anything with it um, if it hadn't been for 2009 and actually being commentating and being right in the zone mm. um, at the World Championships in Poznan when I kind of, the, the, the switch was flicked really to make me want to come back and realise, you know, with three years to go, maybe I could do this thing. Yeah, and I must say just, you know, off the bat, I just a huge amount of respect and 
hats off to to coming back at you know the age of 38 and at that time i i would go just you know from being a fan of rowing and watching rowing i think the generation of rowers at that time in 2012 and gb the class of 2012 that was a flipping good class of rowers that went to that game so for you to come back into the sport 10 years after you hung up your uh, oars with the family and get and make it into that eight at that time must have that's incredible achievement and um, yes, what a what a cool eight to be part of. I think you you know you rode with some incredible names that people you know uh, younger rows now are very familiar with. And uh, what an incredible race too. And you know the you're taking on the the big German force and you know really taking it to them. I think you know coming coming away with a, a bronze medal to end off that that comeback must have been incredibly satisfying to know that you came back to the sport and that you still had the the ability and you still had the you know the the skills to to compete with the best in the world yeah no it was incredible to come back and to be part of london 2012 um was was fantastic because by this time you know i had lots of friends from from around where i live and and everyone was getting excited about excited about london 2012 you know how were you going to get hold of tickets what were you going to go and watch um, were you going to have a street party? <laughs> you know, mm. and I was, I was there, I was competing. Um, and I'd built up to it over the three years and the excitement in the whole country had grown. Um, and I felt like I'd been able to be a very good influence on that eight that, mm. you're, that, that I was in as well. Um, I hope I was a good influence outside of the eight for the whole of, of Team GB um, and the whole, the whole of the rowers. Um, but I certainly hope I was a good influence on that eight. I've got to say, when I decided I wanted to come back after Poznan, it kind of helps that in 2010 we were going to Carapiro, which mm. I'd known had been one of the coolest world championships ever that I hadn't been to. Mm. The next year we were going to go to Bled, which I yeah. think is, you know, there's not many better lakes in the world than Bled. Yeah, that's yeah, the and, most beautiful. And then I'd get to race in London. So, you know, to, to be in the team for those three years was going to be a huge, huge privilege. Um, mm. And so to to go through the steps and the early stages um, of trialing was quite exciting. And then to get into the eight. And as I say, I think to try to help the eight kind of shape the shape, the team, shape the conversations a little bit, um, have more self-belief that we would be capable of taking on that German eight, you know, potentially winning a gold medal at the World Championships, winning a gold medal at the Olympics, I felt like I had a role in not just being one eighth of the team pulling as hard as I could, but actually mm. to try and get the best out of the Cox and the other seven people and help them deliver their best as well, which was a bit of the kind of maturity, I guess, that I hoped I was bringing to it as well mm. as just what I brought as a role. Yeah, the, the, actually, I was there because I came across to to watch London. Uh, my my older brother was was racing in the lightweight four, so I watched your yeah. race. And you know, you did speak a bit about the kind of uh, GB's tradition or, or culture of just always going for gold. And I mean, I I really I had so much respect uh, for your eight after after that race because I mean, it re you really went for gold. You came through that first five hundred, and then you put your yourselves from uh, second place into first, well into first through the the middle of the race, and then. Um, and and really gave it the the best go that I, I mean at least as a, a young guy watching the race it was like cool if if you guys were going to win that was your race uh, to do it you know that was everything you you guys had so I think it was very special to to watch and I think 
you know, you spoke about inspiring a generation. And I think you you definitely did that. Uh, though I think London inspired uh, the gener- a generation of rowers to to yeah. kind of go forward. And you know, I'd had a tough year not being at the games. Uh, Twenty eleven was my first uh, World Champs, and and we hadn't qualified, and it was uh, things were looking a bit grim for me. But yeah. you know, just being in London and and seeing those crowds, that that culture of yes, rowing was was really was something special, and it inspired. You know the the lightweights winning their gold there inspired me and my teammates uh, to carry on rowing and to to go forward and and win a silver in, in Rio. So it was a very special Olympics for sure. Mm. I mean the crowds, yeah. the watching the video of your race, the crowds. It's the most ridiculous. It's like uh, you know if you just take the audio from a crowd in soccer or rugby. I could not believe the crowds. It was crazy. And yeah. then no, just, it was so special to compete in that environment. And it yeah. wasn't just during the race for us. It was walking into the venue, and you know, yeah. you know, and it's like I mean, the the Springboks playing against the the British Lions, mm. you know, what it's like around the whole kind of town and people walking from a bus to a venue. We had that each time we came in, and it was it was amazing. Everyone dressed in our kits, everyone supporting us on your training rows, having people there actually caring and shouting and watching. Yeah, was was really special, as well as what you see on the TV when you just watch the. The kind of six minutes of racing um yeah you know, we lived through that yeah. it, was, it was wonderful to be part of mm. and then i mean i know i can see we we we, we press for time a little bit but let's there's just one more question from sam glenn one of our, our other listeners that he wanted to know like the biggest changes in the training and the kind of team's culture between your your early career and then when you moved back into into the team in, in 2010 had it changed a lot or was the foundation still very much the same Yeah, so I think it's really interesting. The culture had probably changed. The work we were doing was really quite similar. Um, So when I say that, we were still based on sort of Jürgen Grobler's traditional training approach, which was a large amount of volume and a low amount of intensity, um, which was the stuff that I fought against in my early career. Um, You know, I wanted control. I wanted, you know, high pain, lots of lactate, lots of boat skills. And what Jürgen wanted wasn't lots of boat skills and high pain. He wanted lots of consistency and kind of churning it out. Mm. The funny thing was, um, in 2012, or when I just signed up to that, it suited me really well. Um, (laughs) My physiology is really good at churning out hours of consistent, low-impact training. Um, Certainly as a 38-year-old, a 39-year-old, a 40-year-old, I was actually pretty good at doing Jürgen's program. And the thing that we had now was total buy-in, 100% buy-in to it, rather than factions fighting each other. Mm. Um, and I would say the massive thing we had was loads of rest. Um, when I was doing it in my early days, and I think a lots of countries around the world, people are trying to be rowers and train, and they're trying to further their career. And they're working, you know, cycling around a city on a bike, going in and out of an office, doing a day job and rowing. For London, you know, the whole build up for me to 2012, the big difference was the rest, was that I did the training and then I did nothing or I did very little in between. Yeah. And I loved it. Yeah. You know, I loved <laughs> sitting around and chatting to the guys and yeah. drinking cappuccinos and, you know, watching, you know, Netflix. Netflix probably didn't exist then. Box sets, you know, watching box sets yeah. on training camps and things like that. Whereas back in the day, we didn't have training camps, you know. Mm. And if we did, you know, you, you had to bring all your injuries to your training camp because you'd get to see a physio. Um, you know, we 
in the culture of, of, of British rowing in the build-up to 2012, you had a physio there every day. So as soon as you got injured, you got treated yes. rather than, you know, carrying them around for a month. Mm. Oh, it's quite incredible. So yeah. moving on to, we have a, a few questions at the end of the show, our quick fire questions that uh, always give the best results Fan and favorites. we ask them to, yeah. to, to all of our guests. And We'll jump into them and, and you will see how you take them. You say you've listened yeah. to a few episodes, so maybe you, you know what's coming. Yeah. But you, you've raised a lot of boat classes and a lot of Olympics. But if you could choose one more Olympics to go to, which boat class would you choose to, to – would you want to go in? Yeah, I think I would go in the eight. I would go mm. back in the eight because I love the team spirit, the shared um, – ups and downs of being in an eight. And I also think I could find seven people stronger than me. Mm. And I'd probably need it. (laughs) Good answer there. Yeah, definitely. I think that's a huge draw for a lot of people is the camaraderie that you get in the eight. Um, The next question is, if you could choose any three people from any time and anywhere around the world to race in a a coxless four, what would your three people be? Who would your three people be? Sorry. Well, um, Okay, well, look, I, I've got to stay. Um, I've got to stay close to home. Um, I've got to. I've got to have Martin Cross in there because um, mm. Crossy would keep me entertained, uh, <laughs> keep pushing me the whole way along. I think I'd have to have Sarah Cook in there because um, yeah. Sarah brings brings so much to the party in terms of her breadth yeah. and her knowledge, um, and I, I can't race at the highest level without my brother. So, awesome. Yeah, that would be good my combination. Yeah, I think yeah. the the post chat interview from you know the selection of of commentators there would be unlike any other probably. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We would go on a bit. Our trade, yeah. our, our post race conversation would never finish. Yeah. yeah, but we'd be pretty lost watching the race because we'd have no idea what's going on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. So. Uh, as a commentator, actually, this is a brilliant question. And uh, what is your favorite rowing race uh, of all time? It doesn't have to be one of yours. Uh, uh, I mean, for me, the the singles in Rio, I guess, you know, Demir Martin and Mahe coming down to, you know, a, a, a draw. I mean, mm. it's a pretty incredible thing to have happen. Um I mean, that was that was a pretty special one. I mean, obviously, my Barcelona 92 race, you know, I'd like to hope it gets up mm. there when you say kind of one of the greatest races of all time. Yeah. Um, you know, that was pretty special. But, you know, the Canadian women's eight uh, in Tokyo, um, you know, the way they raced. And for me, the moment on the medal ceremony uh, when the Cox goes along to each of the crew, and kind of doesn't just give them their medal, but holds them in an embrace and kind mm. of talks to each of them um, and really kind of shows that connection. For me, that's kind of one of the greatest moments in, in recent memory I think I've had is, is watching that medal ceremony, actually. Yeah, and so, we, when, when this episode goes out, people will know about this, but we actually just spoke to Christine Roper from the Canadian 8, and that was such an amazing conversation because i think just for that race that was a big project that that team had been working on so i think to get that right must have been very special um yeah yeah but the next question and always a lovely discussion is if you were in charge at wool drawing what would you change (laughs) oh i mean 
so look, I do some work with a charity that encourages kids to play sports called Access Sports. And at a recent event, we had a couple of the BMX riders there. And mm. the BMX in Great Britain has been the most clicked upon um, sport from the Olympics. And it's, you know, the, the British BMX woman kind of doing a flip 360, kind of flying through the air and, and landing a mm. bike and, and winning a gold medal. And I think, what does rowing need to do to remain relevant? Because mm. there's two sides to it. There's one is the traditional side that we love racing 2000 meters. We've all done it. Most people listening will know the challenge and that it's, a, you know, it's a mental challenge, it's a physical challenge, it's a technical challenge. Um, how can we still have that in a way which people will get engaged with and want to kind of click on and want to consume um, and enjoy? So how can rowing stay relevant, stay true to its roots at the same time? And so, you know, I think it's a, it's a live conversation, you know, as we come towards L.A., and we think mm. about whether we're going to be doing, you know, whether it's four lane racing, whether it's going to be over, you know, something closer to 1500 meters or a thousand, you know, what would that look and feel like? Um, mm. You know, whether it even starts to look like, you know, kind of crashing through waves, you know, we've just had the coastal championships. Will rowing need to look like that to be attractive and interesting? Um, personally, I hope it doesn't need to. I hope it can still look more traditional and still be relevant and interesting and have a global reach and a global appeal. So mm. if I was in charge of world rowing, what would I do? I would keep getting people to think about how to be innovative. I don't know what mm. the answer is, but I do think we need to be innovative and we can't afford to just think six lane racing 2000 meters is gonna be here to stay for the next 50 years within the Olympic program. Mm. No, I think that's that's a, a really good answer. I think that really sums up quite well just in general, all the conversations we have with the guests. And I'm also, I think the 2000 meter race, I think there's something very special about that that distance and, and the effort that goes into that. And I would never want to see that go away. But 100%, I would also love to see, you know, sprint events um, get introduced to a program. Because I mean, again, it's much more consumable, I feel like, towards spectators. And again, I think you, you would also maybe make it a little bit more accessible to kind of different kind of athlete but it is a there's definitely an avenue that you know we rowers have to mm. you know keep glued upon it and and then try and yeah. constantly search on but how to innovate i also feel like there's there's other things around the 2000 meter race that can encourage um kind of viewership and uh interest in the sport you know like just having more access to the athletes to their stories you know we spoke to martin cross and one of the things we really wanted was like the post-race interview, like, you know, like, a, you know, ju just before the medal ceremony or like cutting the medal ceremony shorter to just have a chat to, to the athletes that have just come off the water because that's when their emotions are high. That's when the results are, are fresh. And, and, you know, just hearing what uh, athletes have to say on the finish line is, is it would be amazing to, to so have access in, to. In, in uh, 1997, when I was racing in the single, I tried to experiment with commentating on my own races you know, would it be possible for you to actually, you know, like you're doing the cricket where someone's standing yes. in the field and you've got it, how's the game going? You know, could you speak to a rower in the race? How's the race going? <laughs> and you're trying to talk. Oh, that, probably mid-race mid -race was pretty tough, um, you know, but close to the start. You know, I know it's not what any of us want to be doing, but, but you yeah. know, what's going through your mind in the three minutes before, yeah. you know, the flag drops. Exactly. Uh, or the, the shoe drops nowadays, yeah. you know. 
each of those things, you know, what can we do that, yeah. like you say, tells these stories, gives people mm. the insight, lets people understand what's, what it's really yeah. like. I think all those things are helpful. Exactly. Then our next question is the one that every uh, schoolboy rower wants to know about. And it's a really interesting question for you because I think you were the world record holder before... Um, uh, Rob Waddell. Uh, uh, before Rob Waddell in the, in, on the Ergo. So the question is, what was your PB or uh, personal record on the, on the 2K Erg? And were you, were you world record holder? Yeah, so I think I was world record holder for a very short amount of time. Um, and it was 544.1 um, mm. done on a Concept 2 in Leander Club on a testing day when I was 24 years old. Um, awesome. And, yeah, and it, it sounds ridiculous, you know, it didn't even hurt. Um, of course it oh. hurts. <laughs> of course it hurts <laughs> like hell. Yeah. But it's the sort of thing that the ones the ones where you don't get a good score are the ones that really that hurt the most. Um, yeah. Yes. It just kind of flew out and before I knew it I was coming through five hundred and you know, coming to the third quarter, you're still thinking, Oh, this is going pretty well, you know, I think there's still a bit more left. Um, and then it was only real really a kind of fight over the last five hundred um, to, mm. to get it over. Jeez, the line. that's amazing though. It must have been yeah. pretty special to to set the, the world best time on the on the rowing machine, especially at that time. Like the the rowing machine was really on its on its way up yeah. to to becoming such a dominant piece of yeah. equipment for for rowing. Yeah, yeah, and I'd even started when you had to do two thousand five hundred meters at the crash beach. Oh, you know, so Zeno. Got, yeah. yeah, when we spoke to Zeno Willer, he told us about the two and a half k. I'm like, please, <laughs> yeah. thank God, it's it's two k. Try and break seven and a half minutes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Oh, that's crazy yeah that's crazy yeah um so the cool thing about this question uh, question is greg we've actually put together an ergo ladder for um, oh, yeah. for our listeners and you are the fastest uh british row we've had on the show with a 544 uh the next quickest is actually pete reed at 546 and i think on the total order you sit tie fifth position with olaf tufter and sferi nielsen on a 544 I'm happy to keep that company. Yeah, yeah that's, that's pretty that's good. That's a very strong yeah. company there. Yeah. Unfortunately, Jake, it's sixth position because I haven't put Hamish six. in there. And Hamish oh, was, uh, was just ahead <laughs> there. Yeah. yeah. But okay. still, that's uh, <laughs> I can live well, well respectable. Yeah. And the, if you take into account that uh, it's um, you know a couple years old, it's uh, it's still holding yeah. up pretty well in, Very well in the global scheme of things. Yeah, I mean, I guess that was about 1995 or 1996, probably. I did that. Yeah. What was the so, what was your fast the fastest two k when you came back to 2012? Uh, I'm just yeah, interested. Great question. Yeah, I think it was about a 56, about 5:56. Okay. So I faded yeah. about 12 seconds. So yeah, nice. I mean, it's kind of ten years four percent, I guess. Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. Yeah. So. Uh, then the last question is, if you could choose a different sport to go to the Olympics in, which sport would you be? And now you've mentioned a couple uh, that you, you were part of in your gap and uh, and stuff. So maybe there's an interesting one in there. Yeah, yeah. No, what would I like to do? I'd like to, I'd like to play cricket, but that's not in the Olympics. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's probably the sport that I... But I, it's still I, a professional I, sport, so you could, I suppose, choose it. If I'm allowed mm. to do that, and we're allowed to bring it into the Olympics... Um, yeah. In a short well, you could format, just, you could just go but, play the the IPL in uh, in India for a couple of years. I, I could go and do that. I think I, I mean, it's so hard to say. I think running. I mean, being doing the hundred meters, being the the fastest person in the world, I think would be the thing yeah. 
that I think I would choose if I if I could do anything and be great at it. Mm. But yeah, yeah. hopefully awesome. that's useful. Yeah, yeah. Cool. no, I think the 100 meters, uh, I think everyone, I think if you ask the general general public, I think that would probably be the number one event. Such a, you know, such an incredible event to watch and probably the the poster board event for the actual Olympic Games. Although I would I would argue that marathon is probably the poster board Olympic event. But yeah, 100 meters for sure. Yeah, I mean, I've often thought about it and being kind of the heavyweight champion of the world and, you know, being the, the best fighter in the world. But that's really going to hurt. And I don't think mm. I'm up for that. I think, yeah, I think I'm better at running and fighting. Yeah. Yeah. I always say I could I could learn how to throw a punch, but I don't know if I could learn how to take a punch. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, for sure. For sure. <laughs> um, but yeah, anyway, that you know brings us to end, Greg. Thanks a lot. I, th- I hope we didn't take too much of your time there, but I think we had an awesome chat. And of course, it's always a, a privilege getting to speak to the legends of the sport such as yourself. So. Thanks a lot for giving us a bit of your time and uh, you know getting an episode on the the road show. It's been a, it's been a, a great conversation. Yeah. No, Jake Lawrence, thank you. It's been really great to talk to you and, and, and good luck with the show. Keep it going. Mm. Thank, thank you, you very, very much. much. And, well, oh, was there anything else? Anything that we missed? Any shout outs uh, you wanted to make? And and what are you up to? Are you still doing some some commentary for the next season coming up? Yeah, well, I don't know with the commentary because I don't know where we'll go next. And I mean, it's been brilliant to actually see Sarah and Martin kind of really engaging with this kind of stuff. I've I've done less, as you've probably noticed, as good good viewers of the sport and getting out to the championships and all those things. Mm. Um, so I don't know, you know, I don't know what my my commentary future will look like. Um, but I I love coming out to the races and I love sharing what I what I can see and kind of trying to give the insight. That I feel like there's a kind of job which it's a bit like I said about coxing with the head and heart. As a commentator, there's a certain amount of the head which is give some facts, but then I think it's giving that insight that, that what's it really like to be in this race? Kind of mm. what, what's my opinion? What are my beliefs? You know, why is this thing happening? Which, which I hope me, Martin, and Sarah, um, and, and Kat Holloway when she's in there as well are able to bring a bit more of to it which I hope people like listening to. Yeah. I must say, I've enjoyed the the commentary a lot. These last, yeah. uh, these last, I don't know, five years or so, I feel like the, there's, you can see yeah. that there's a lot of effort getting put into, into the commentary. And I think that's really yeah. coming through. Yeah. And of yeah, course, nice. Greg, you, you are a, a, a published author. So, you know, all the listeners out there, uh, we encourage you to go check that out. It's, um, if not now, when, and uh, published by uh, Craig Saul in 2012. So, of course, go check that out. Brilliant. Thank you. Awesome. Cheers. Cheers, Greg. Have a good day. Sweet. So that is a wrap for Greg Saul. Unfortunately, we had limited time with Greg, so we couldn't split this into two episodes. But, man, what a roller coaster ride. What an awesome chat. Jake, any big takeaways? Yeah, I think uh, it's uh, you know there's there's so much to take away. We spoke a lot about his uh, interview highlights um, in the pre-chat, but maybe the you know what was what was interesting to talk about is like obviously the highlights are you know the the comeback and that gold medal. But I thought we we got a lot out of the 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 years where maybe it was a little bit disappointing or you know the interesting years. Like I find the sculling the sculling experience is always really interesting to hear about and like the 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 thought behind making that move and uh you know the just kind of the the logic behind it and also 
just him talking about that that race in 2000 it's like it's very telling of the the athlete and person that he is and yeah i think i those probably the parts of the interview i enjoyed the most i'm complete opposite to you my favorite parts talking <laughs> about winning the, the cox pair for the last time and like just going into the cox pair i always think that you know, it's a boat class that is eventually going to be forgotten that no one will ever speak about. And no really one will cool forget too. the Cox pair. They will forget <laughs> it after time. Maybe we'll come back in the in the sprints in the fifteen hundred meters. Because Lawrence Olympic Lawrence wants games. to forget the Cox pair. <laughs> I'm not my not my proudest uh, regatta. But <laughs> the and then the other part that I really enjoyed talking about is coming back ten years and coming back. You know and you know, hearing that your the Olympics going to be in London and making the decision to be like, I've still got it and I can make that team and I can be racing and then making the podium, I think is just a cherry on the top and unbelievable. Mm. So a huge shout out to Greg. What an absolute legend. Thanks for coming on the show. And to all the listeners, you guys are the real heroes as well. Uh, thanks for listening to the show. Thanks for supporting us. The Patreons are absolute cream of rowing knowledge and always giving us the, the those uh little tidbits on our on our whatsapp group having the good banter there and just a huge support so thanks so much and share the show tell someone about it and help us grow a little bit more before the end of uh, 2021 yeah and i think uh, besides that guys it's you know it's december everyone have a safe holiday travel safe wherever you're going Put that row show on the on on the speakers and uh, have a very merry Christmas if you celebrate that and a good New Year's going into Yeah, I saw you both out in Tokyo. How was it? Oh, a little bit disappointing, to be honest. It didn't it didn't go how we we yeah. how we had planned. Uh, yeah. We both had successful campaigns in in Rio, so we were looking for something more in Tokyo. And obviously, we yeah. got the in the formula wasn't right for us. So a bit disappointing, but uh, I mean that's the nature of the sports. You know, you have to you have to yeah. live in and move on. Yeah. yeah, we yeah. we basically just overcooked ourselves a bit going in our training program. I think we just got it a, a little bit wrong because we we were pretty fast at uh, the late qualification, and then we were we had some really good in, yeah. increase in speed, like in the next month. And then that last month, we started we wobbled a little bit, and then that week at Tokyo was just the absolute worst. So mm. not a great way to end a cycle, <laughs> but yeah, you know, I mean it's such a tough cycle that you all had to go through. Mm. Um, I mean the unknown of it, and I don't know what life was like in South Africa, but it looked pretty, you know, pretty tough from over here. Yeah, uh, it yeah didn't initially, look like you guys had it much easier. Though. No, yeah, initially the the lockdown was quite heavy, but um, I think we did re we 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 did return to some normal semblance of uh, routine training, which was quite nice. But I think just the general stress of 
avoiding COVID and constantly worrying about, you know, getting sick and that the, the consequences that would have for your athletic ambitions were really probably the biggest toll for me, not necessarily the, you know, the, the restrictions that we had within the country is more just about, you know, the extra, um, you know, the extra time you had to spend making sure that you weren't uh, putting yourself in compromise of compromised positions. Yeah, no, I bet. I bet. And did you manage to avoid getting COVID? Have you had it yet? No, I haven't had it. Mm. No, I, I think our whole team actually made it through without getting COVID. Yeah. So we, yeah. we yeah, none, both Lawrence and I managed to stay COVID free. And we've, I think yeah. we had a, we had it like a little bit in the under 23 team got a, a few cases uh, around December last year. Um, yeah. But in general, but we basically, we just lived up in the mountains. We have a training venue in, uh, in Lesotho in South Africa and it's like really okay. isolated in the bubble. So mm. we spend like most of our time there. And then when we traveled back to South Africa, that was, that was where it was so stressful because you're coming back into an environment that's pretty open you know, the restrictions yeah. weren't enough for us. So we were having to like be overcautious and it was, that part was, was really, really tough. Yeah. Mm. Cool. Oh, well, it's good you've avoided it. I mean, I got it, my whole family got it and it wasn't nice. Oh, you sure. know, my daughter, my daughter was 19 at the time and I think it knocked her for three or four months probably. Yeah. Um, you know, yeah. breathing and stuff. Yeah. I yeah. think that's no, the look- scary thing about it is it's not, um, predictable so like some people yeah. get really sick and and some young people also get like it really can uh, take them out for a long time that's what surprised me with my daughter that you know you i thought she'd be completely fine yeah um, now look yeah. someone's just sending me messages do you mind if i'm, I'm just going to tell them i'm busy now and that i'll, yeah, of I'll course. get to them no worries cool. and no then worries. We, haven't, we haven't officially started so it's not an issue yeah i'll turn off my wi-fi uh, my outlook too so i stop getting plings do you hear those mm. plingings yeah. No, we don't actually. I'm not hearing them. Okay, I'll just shut that down. Um, 